0: We're up to Chapter 1, Mishnah 2 of Pirkei Avos, of Chapters of the Fathers, of Ethics of the Fathers, of Eternal Ethics. And last week, last Mishnah, we learned about the the Gray Assembly, a, a convention of 120 giants who got together and formulated the future of the Jewish nation. This Mishnah we learn about one of the last members of that body, who acts as the next link in the chain of transmission. So let's read the Mishnah quickly. Uh, this is a very fundamental Mishnah. And I think that um, there's a lot to say on it. So let's let, let's let's read it and then see who this character is and try to parse out his lesson. Shimon HaTzarek Haya Shimon the righteous was among the last members of the Great Assembly. Who Haya Omar would frequently say, Al omed, on three things the world stands. Al Ha Torah, Al on Torah, on Avoda, which means worship of God, and and on on kindness. So that's the Mishnah. Let's first learn a little bit about who this person was. Ezra who founded the men of the great assembly, who oversaw the construction of the second temple, who led the beginning of this, what's known as the second commonwealth when the Jews came back to Israel for the first time, but they started the second commonwealth. He was a Kohain, and he was the Kohen Gadol, the head, the high priest. Shimon Hatzaddik was also a Kohen Gadol, was also a high priest, and he was Ezra's successor. And the Talmud tells us a lot about a lot of a few episodes about his reign as high priest. So, first of all, it tells us in the book of Yoma. The book of Yoma is the book that deals with everything that happens on Yom Kippur. Right? The word Yoma means day. And it's just the name of the book of Talmud that deals with Yom Kippur is just called Yoma, which means day. Because it's whenever you're about the day, the most significant day, the day, it's a reference to Yom Kippur. So it gives us a list of accolades of Shimon Hatzadik as the Kohen Gadol, as the high priest. And it says that he served for 40 years, and there were a few characteristics of his tenure that are important to mention. First of all, every single Yom Kippur that he served, on Yom Kippur there's the drawing of the lottery, where the Kohen Gadol has to select which one of the Animals is going to be for God, and which one is going to be thrown off the cliff? Which for Azazel? And every year it's random. For forty years straight, unprecedented, the one that came La Hashem for God came up in his right hand, which is a more powerful hand. That's one example. Secondly, uh, on Yom Kippur they would light. Uh, they, they would they would tie a red string on top of the temple. And then once atonement was gained, that red string would turn white. And that happened for all 40 years when Shimon was leading. Afterwards, once he retired, then some years it turned white, depending upon the righteousness of the Kohen Gadol and the nation. Some years it didn't. Uh, other examples. The Western Candle. We're told that there was a menorah with seven candelabras in the temple. We we read about it in uh, the book of Exodus, right? We're told to make a a menorah, make a candelabra with seven seven candles. The Western one was one they lit first. And they put a uniform amount of oil in each one of the vessels. Even though the Western one was lit first, it still burned out last. And that had a very important meaning. Darius different opinions as to why. Afterwards, once he, once he retired, sometimes yes, sometimes no. Uh, additionally, uh, the fire on the altar was always very strong. And lastly, the various offerings that the Kohanim partook in, most notably the Omer, the Stehalechem, the the showbreads, every Kohan would get a little bit, like a, the amount of an olive, a tiny amount of bread, but they would be satiated. It was a miracle. And afterwards, it wasn't quite the same. This is the Talmud listing the characteristics of Shimon HaTzarek's tenure as Kohen Gondel. He was so righteous, he was so worthy that all the things were miraculous and, and they were present. That's, that's one example that the Talmud tells us of this person's righteousness. It's also interesting that his name was called Shimon HaTzarek, Shimon the Righteous. It's very unique in Jewish history for someone to be labeled as a tzaddik. There's a few of them. Uh, Noah, of course, is called a Tzadik in the Torah. But Yosef, jo- Joseph in Genesis, in Jewish sources, is always labeled as Yosef HaTzadik. But there are some examples. But it's very unique. And the fact that Shimon HaTzadik is called Shimon HaTzadik, Shimon is the righteous, should show us, of course, this is someone very someone very special. On the final Yom Kippur of his life and of his tenure as Koin Gadol, when he left the Holy of Holies, the Talmud tells us again in the book of Yomah, that he knew this year he was going to pass. And he told the assembled, this is my final year on planet Earth. And they said to him, well, how, how do you know? How do you know? No one knows when they're going to die. So he told them, Yom every single Yom Kippur, the previous 39 years, whenever I walked into the Holy of Holies, there was a, an angel that looked like an old man who was wearing white clothing, and wrapped in right clothing, and he would help me. Today, I got in there, and there was an old, there was an angel, an old man, but he was wearing black clothing, and he was wrapped in black shrouds, and he walked in with me, but it didn't come out with me. And indeed, after the holidays, after circus that year, he got ill, and he died seven days later. Once he died, there were various changes that were made amongst his successors. We know that Anyom Kipper Kippur was the only time, uh, on Kipper, Kippur and by the Kohen God, was the only time that the ineffable name of God was uttered. We know the way we, the way in the Torah they spell the name of God and the way we pronounce it are different. And the reason is because there's a prohibition against pronouncing the name of God the way it's spelled. Therefore we say a different uh, pronunciation of that same name. On Kipper. Kippur the Kohen Gadol would say that. But once Shimon HaTzarek passed, they stopped doing it already. They felt that maybe they're not quite on the same spiritual level of Shimon HaTzarek and doing it would be dicey and would be dangerous. So they they, they stopped doing it. There's another fam- famous episode in the Talmud about Shimon HaTzarek as a Kohen Gadol. It's one of my favorite episodes in the Talmud. I think it's very illustrative. It teaches you a lot of important lessons, not necessarily about Shimon HaTzarek, but about uh, the subject matter. And that is with regards to the Nazir. The Nazir is the individual who accepts upon himself a vow of Nazirus, a vow to abstain from wine or grape derivatives for a minimum of 30 days, but could be as long as someone uh, assigns it to be, uh, to not come into contact with dead people and to be abstained, to be removed, to be ascetic. And the sages of the Talmud say that this is something that was discouraged even though you're allowed to do it, and it's the whole section of the Torah about how to do it, and all the laws, it was discouraged. And therefore, Shimon at Sadek made an announcement, I'm not partaking in this. Whenever there was a Nazir that came to the temple who wanted to do some of the procedural sacrifices of the Nazir, he wouldn't partake in it, We you know, because whenever there's a sacrifice, there's part of the meat given to the Kohen. Right? The Kohens are eating a lot of... The Kohens were the first ones to go on the Atkins diet. <laughs> and... Uh, and they're eating a lot of meat because they're, they, they are entitled to partake in various parts of the sacrifices. So Shimon Hatzadik says, I, whenever there's a Nazir, I don't want any part of it. I'm worried about it. I don't think the people should accept upon themselves the vow of a Nazir. It's not appropriate. Therefore, he didn't partake it with the exception of one episode. What's this one episode that Shimon Hatzadik changed his policy and partook in the sacrifice of a Nazir? There was a young man from the south who came to the temple with a sacrifice. He was a an Nazir. And I saw, this is Shemarat talking, he, his eyes were very beautiful and he was very handsome. And his long flowing locks of hair were very perfect, very beautiful. And I said to him, Bini, my son, Mara Isa Lahashkas why did you why did you decide to destroy your hair? Because one of the laws of the Nazir, then I'll cut the hair off. But once they finish the Nazirus, then they have to shave off all their hair. So why did you accept upon yourself to become a Nazir and thus to shave such beautiful hair? So he responded. Amrli told me, says Shimonotar, I was a shepherd for my father in my city. And I went to fill up the water from the spring. And I saw my reflection in the water. And right away, my Yetzirah erupted within me and tried to destroy my life. And I said to him, Russia, wicked one, Why are you prideful in a world that is not yours? Why are you prideful? How could you have pride in a body when we know the destiny of all bodies is worms and maggots. I'm making a pledge, Shegal Chal that I'm going to cut off this hair. And therefore, right away, he accepted upon himself a vow of a an Nazir, and he became a Nazir, which would eventually have to cut his hair. Miyad, Amad, Tiv, and Shemataik is concluding his, uh, his statement. Right away, I got up and I kissed him on his head. I said to him, my son, Nazirim like you, people that are using this tool of the Nazir to battle with their Yetzirah is proper. And if only all the Nazirim that come here would be like you. And upon you it says, when a man makes a nedir, of a, a, a when makes a vow of nazirus for Hashem. This is when it's done properly. And this story in itself is really interesting um, from Shimon Talat's perspective, of course. But also, uh, the many, many commentaries who delve into what exactly happened with this Nazir, with this individual. He sees his reflection. He sees his beautiful flowing hair. He gets an eruption of his Eitzahara and he decides to become a Nazir. It seems like it's a strange calculation. There's a lot, if you have long hair and it's causing you to want to sin, there's a lot easier solutions. Then becoming a nazir, spending thirty days not drinking wine, not coming to contact with dead people, not cutting your hair, and then after thirty days he'll cut your hair. She said, "Grab a piece of scissors, grab some scissors, and start cutting." So one of the commentaries, uh, uh, the Ben Yehoyada, he answers that the introduction to the story is important. He was a farmer, or he was a, he was a shepherd, and he was oh, the whole the whole the whole beginning doesn't seem, seems out of place. And the answer he says says the Ben Yehoyada, well, he was a shepherd with his flock out grazing. So he wasn't home and he was worried that I don't have scissors handy, but I have this inspiration to cut my hair. But that inspiration is going to start to dissipate right away. And therefore, the only thing I could do right now that will guarantee that I'll cut off my hair is if I accept upon myself a valve and nausea. If I wait 15, 20 minutes till I get home, I may say, mm, I'm not so sure about that. The hair's kind of nice. And all that inspiration will probably go to waste, which is another important lesson. But either way, we see a little bit of color and character of Shimon al-Tzadik. You think about him. He's the high priest. He's the highest uh, office in the temple. The temple is the nexus, the epicenter of Jewish life. People are coming from all over all over Israel. This young man comes from the south with sacrifices. Other people, every day it's bustling. And he's there, and he's the tzadik, and he's the leader of the people, and he's the one who's telling us, What does the world really stand? What are the three principles, the three pillars that uphold the world? We would be remiss when talking about Shema and not mentioning the final episode with him and Alexander, which again tells you when is this happening. Alexander had a very short reign, but a very memorable one. He died when he was 32. Alexander the Great, Alexander of Macedonia as he called, Alexander Makdon, as he called in the Talmud. And the Talmud tells us an astonishing episode where Shimon Tzaddik, the leader of the Jewish world, meets Alexander Macedonia, the leader of the known world. And the story goes that there was a bunch of called Kusim, Kuthites, who were doing everything they can to try to destroy the Jewish nation and the Jewish uh, homeland, the Jewish commonwealth. And they were telling libels and lies to Alexander to tell them, oh, these Jews, they have this temple, and there they're conniving and planning against you. We want to destroy them. He says, sure, let's go destroy them. So Alexander, with his army, with his band of Cuthites, they start marching towards Judea. And the message is sent to Shemunat Tzadik that Alexander and the Greeks are coming with very nefarious plans. So right away, he got dressed up as the Kohen Gadol. He put on his special vestments of the Kohen Gadol. And he brought all the, um, the leaders of Israel with him. And they took torches of light in their hand. And they're marching the whole night. And they're two, these two contingencies are marching towards each other. And at daybreak, they meet. And this is, again, from the book of Yom on page 69a. Uh, so at daybreak, these two sides converge. And Alexander sees this group approaching him. So, all the Kuthites tell him, he has, who, asks, who, who are these people? He asks the Kuthites, Well, these are the Jews who rebelled against you. And finally, they get even closer, and he sees Shemaratharic. And he gets off his chariot, and he bows before him. And they tell him, All his people, You're the great king. You're going to bow to this Jew? And he tells him, The visage of this person appears to me before every battle. We know, Alexander didn't lose a single battle in his whole career. Before every battle, even though he was greatly outnumbered. Before every battle, his visage appears for me, and he helps me in my war. When I see him, I know I win. And he asks the Jews, well, why are you here? And they respond, well, there's a home, there's a building, that they always pray that for you and for your kingdom, that it shouldn't be destroyed. And there's a bunch of idolaters that want to destroy it. And Alexander incredulously asks, who, who wants? Who would want to destroy a, a house that they're praying for me? And they start pointing, these people, these Kuthites that are with you. And Alexander, of course, turns the table on them and he says, you guys do whatever you want with them and they were able to defeat the Kuthites. Another great story about Shemunat Sadek. Uh, and uh, he is the... Author of our Mishnah, but one of the great leaders of Jewish history. So, how does the Mishnah start? Shimon Atzarek, he and it labels him. He was the remnant. He was the the last members of the Menorah Assembly, and I think it's it does really have continuity with the previous Mishnah. The previous Mishnah was all about the idea that every successive generation is a step down spiritually. Shimon Atzarek is great. We learned a bunch of stories about him. He's called a tzaddik. But he's still called the last members, right? He is of the the, the last and smallest members of the previous era. And once he passes, the next era is even a step down. And that again is a continuation of the previous Mishnah. And he tells us something very important. He says, What's it all about? I think it's also appropriate we're learning about how to become better people and how to maximize our experience in life here, what would be more important than to be told what are the core principles and fundamentals about life? And he tells us there's three. There's Torah study, there's avoda. Avoda means work or labor, but it means working for God, working in service of God, but it means worship. What worship is, all the commentaries tell us, it refers to sacrifices, Of course, once the sacrifices are, uh, once they they end with the temple being destroyed, they are replaced by prayer. If you actually look at how the prayer is structured, the morning, afternoon, and evening prayers, they correspond to the morning, afternoon, and evening sacrificial procedures. There's the morning sacrifice, there's afternoon sacrifice, and there's all the evening, not sacrifice, but procedures that happen on the altar, and thus that's corresponding to them. And the Talmud and Brachos tells us the reason why they, the men of the great assembly, why did they enact three daily prayers corresponding to the three daily sacrificial procedures? On Shabbos is an extra sacrifice, an extra prayer. Umkipa is extra sacrifice, extra prayer, and so on. So that's, that's, uh, voda. And lastly, you have kindness. Kindness, of course, is self-explanatory, uh, but just a little, Talmud, in the book of Sukkot, on page 49, it tells us that kindness is actually greater than charity. Why? Because charity, well, that's with money. Kindness is with someone's action and with money. Charity is for poor people. Kindness is for poor people and for rich people. Charity is for living people. Kindness is for living people and for dead people. Moreover, kindness the recipient doesn't have any shame so kindness is is doing is benevolence doing good for other people in the even higher greater realm than than charity now what is special about these three things and that's an important point i think it's a central point of the mishnah these three things of course they're great torah study worship god kindness we're told that upon these three things the world stands what exactly does it mean that upon these three things the world stands? There's slightly, slightly different explanations amongst the, the comments, Sli- slightly different uh, ideas, which I think, and I'll try to argue, really are really one core underlying principle. So Rebbeinu Yona, one of the great commentators on Perkei Avos, we'll meet him a lot in our journey throughout Perkei Avos. Rebbeinu is a 13th century, a medieval commentator, he was also the one who wrote the book Shari Chuva, the Gates of Repentance. But what we, one of the most fundamental commentaries on Perkiravos is from Rabbi Yona. So he says simply, "If you want to know what is the purpose of the world, it's for these three thi- three things. What's the objective? Why was the world created for these three things? Now, what does that mean? So we've mentioned this in many classes that the subject that the that the purpose whatever the purpose is, it's oriented about man. The purpose uh, is about the human for example, man is created in Genesis after everything else because everything else is setting the stage and the future presentation is man and therefore man is really what it's all about that, that, that that's to whom it's all directed but specifically man is presented with the option of choosing perfection, of choosing completion, of choosing ethics, or choosing the opposite, choosing to not perfect themselves. It's the body versus soul. It's the free will. Free will means that the status of man is up near. And the Torah, we said the objective of Torah is to give us the tools to make ourselves perfect. And therefore, if you were to say, "Well, what's the goal of life? What's the reason for the world? Reason for, is is it for man? Well, what about man? What, what's it all? What what about man and mankind? It's about mankind <coughs> having the potential to choose to perfect themselves." Here we're told that there's three components of self-perfection. There's Torah, there's Avoda, and there's Mila Chasadim. There's, there's Torah, worship of God, and and Chesed and kindness. What that means is, in the three, in these three elements, we see the three components of what it looks like when someone is perfect. So first of all, so the, the various commentators explain it in slightly slightly different terms. Uh, so one of them says that well, Torah that's in the mind. So how do you perfect your mind, your intellect? The greatest power that we have is in our, in our is in our cognitive ability. How do you make that element of yourself perfect? Torah. Well, what about action? That's the other element of human behavior that needs perfection. And action is manifest in two planes. There's action between man and God, and there's action between man and one's fellow. Avoda, worship of God, is representative, is corresponding to perfection in action between man and God. Chesed, the third element, is corresponding to kindness, which is perfection of action between man and one's fellow, uh, the Maharal presents it slightly differently. Torah perfects man's self, Avoda, worship of God, perfects man's relationship with God, and Chesed perfects man's relationship with other people. It's interesting; almost all the commentaries break down these three elements to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We know Abraham; he excelled in kindness. He was the one who was always welcoming in the guests. He was the one who was always very benevolent, very giving. And we say chesed, titan chesed Avraham. There's chesed, kindness for Abraham. Isaac is always representative of the characteristic of avoda, of worship of God. First of all, Isaac himself was a sacrifice. Moreover, we say sacrifices were replaced with prayer. Isaac is the only one of the Torah, well, only one in Genesis, who we see in prayer. We see it several times. Isaac is always in prayer. Isaac is isolated. We don't know a lot about him. He's the most mysterious of the forefathers because Isaac is all about the relationship of man and God. And thus us, we're outsiders. It's sort of an intimate, personal relationship that Isaac has with God, and therefore it's not exhibited to other people, whereas kindness, of course, is. And Jacob is representative of Torah. Jacob is the one to whom the entire, all his children are the Jewish people. And therefore, Torah is the most exclusive of these three because it's only for the Jewish people. Only we have Torah. Kindness can be by everyone. Worship of God is also by everyone. Even the temple, which is the epicenter of worship of God, non-Jews can bring sacrifices as well. Torah is for the Jewish people. Moreover, the Midrash tells us that Jacob, before he went to meet his, meet Rachel, ended up being a lot more wives, but he spent 14 years studying Torah. Now, what Torah was at that time is a separate question. Obviously, it's some sort of primordial version of earthly Torah. But we see that Jacob is the one who is representative of these characteristics. Now, there is a Midrash after the sin of the golden calf. God tells Moshe, okay, I'm done with this experiment. I'm done with the Jewish people. You're the only one I'm going to keep. I'm going to destroy everyone else. We'll start anew. And Moshe, of course, goes on to start praying to save the Jewish people. And he invokes Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He made a pledge to them that all their children are going to be the Jewish people. You can't just start anew with me. Demetrius tells us something very critical. Demetrius tells us that Moshe tells God, if a stool, if a chair, of three legs cannot stand, how will a stool of one leg stand? You want to, God, you want to replace a nation that has three pillars upholding, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They are the ones who are holding up the nation. And if that is going to be knocked over, you want to replace it with me, Moshe, maybe I'm great, sure, only one leg. Only one leg. How much more so will that nation, that's not just a nation, nation that comes from Moshe, it will not have continuity. But this Midrash seems to kind of align, uses the same terminology, that there's three stands, there are three legs upon which something stands. I think it does kind of dovetail with this ideology that the world, we said, is created for perfection. We, as our nation, we were given the tools to do it most perfectly. And therefore, we're the ones, so to speak, who are upholding the world. And what, by extension, holds us up, what holds the world up, these Three qualities of Torah, avodah, Yemitele Chassadim, Torah, worship of God, and Yemitele and kindness as manifested by the three steps, the three legs of our nation, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So that's the most simple understanding of this Mishnah. What is the purpose of the world, perfection of man? How is that achieved? Well, of course, the 613 mitzvot, but specifically, there's three arenas of man, of mankind, of our life. That we that we uh, have Torah and uh, Milchus uh, to achieve perfection holistically. Let's dig a little deeper. We know that there's three cardinal sins. By the way, anytime you hear the term three, you you can almost always fit it into this paradigm of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, of uh, the three eras, the three temples, the three prayers. It, it does there 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 is this a lot of power to this breakdown. We're told in the book of Sanhedrin that there's three cardinal sins. There's three sins that you have to give up your life and not transgress. And they are murder, adultery or rape, and idolatry. All other sins, all other transgressions. Someone comes, puts a gun to your head, proverbial gun to the head, right? You're going to die. You may die. Eat a cheeseburger, or I shoot you. That's okay, the Shabbos, or I shoot you. Right? What do you do? You eat the cheeseburger and you decimate the Shabbos. That's the proper and appropriate thing to do. There's even a debate amongst the commentaries. Can you say, I'm going, I'm going above and beyond the call of duty. I'm giving up my life and not eating the cheeseburger. According to one opinion, well, that's, uh, that's, that's very righteous. According to the Rambam, no, you're a murderer. You killed yourself. The Torah tells you, tells you don't give up your life in this case. And therefore it's appropriate for you in this instance to transgress and not die. But these three cardinal sins that you must give up your life for, says the Maharal. These three sins are exactly opposite of these three pillars of the world. Torah corresponds to adultery. Torah is the flip, exact opposite of adultery. Avoda is the opposite of avoda zara. Avoda means worship. Avoda zara is idolatry, which means foreign worship. Worshipping a foreign god. And kindness is the opposite of murder. How so? So he explains like this. First of all, the Ramam tells us that what someone only has a illicit, promiscuous thought if their heart is devoid of wisdom. What this means is like this. Your mind is a battlefront between the two sides within you, between your soul and the Yetzirah, the evil inclination. The soul is pushing for purity, for holiness, for Torah. And the other side is pulling for impurity, for sin. Your mind will be occupied. The question is with what? If it's occupied with Torah, then there's no room for any promiscuous thought to penetrate. Whereas if it is devoid of Torah then invariably the Yetzir Hara, the evil creation, will have a vacuum in which to push his agenda. And therefore, what we're told here is that Torah, well, that's the holy side to uphold the world. What is the flip side of that that pulls down, that destroys the world? That's adultery and rape. That's sexual deviancy. Well, obviously, avoda and avoda zara. Worship of God and worship of idols, that's self-explanatory why they're opposite, right? You're worshiping. What is your highest priority? In a Voda and worship of God, your highest priority is God. In a your highest priority is something else. Those are obviously opposite. And kindness, well, kindness is about giving. An old good character can find, can trace its roots back to the characteristic of giving. What is the most you could take from someone if you take their life? And therefore, the opposite of giving, of charity, of kindness, of all what that represents, is murder. And therefore, it's appropriate that in these instances, you should give up your life. Because these are the most important things. This is the the, the purpose of the world. The purpose of life is to fulfill these three pillars. And therefore, to negate that, to go against that, is... You're going against the purpose of life. It's better to give up your life than to do that. But now that we have three three end goals of life and of Torah, it's interesting, or I think it's important, that it simplifies life for us. Like, why are we living? What are we living for? We're living to achieve these three things. And thus, when we behave in a certain way, when we do Torah, we do kindness, we shouldn't think, for example, kindness. Oh, that's something that's beyond the call of duty. No, if that's the reason why you are here, it's specifically the call of duty. The There's a Mishnah later on in Pirkei that says to us, if you learned a lot of Torah, if you study a lot of Torah, don't be very happy and prideful, look at me. This is why you were created. If the, if the reason why you were created is what you are doing, then you're not necessarily doing beyond the call of duty. Like, Rab Noah Weinberg used to say, "No one is prideful that they could digest. Even though the digestion is a great skill, amazing if you can describe what's happening. Oh, well, unbelievable. But if that's why you were created, or that's a reason for which you were created, it's not something to be prideful of. That's an interesting. I think it's it, it's amazing. You have a little a little statement here, Shematzadik, that does it does. It's just some. It's a match that we can use in our life. Like this is what we're here for. But this is a slightly different explanation brought down by Rashi and month's other commentaries." If you look at the precise word, this upholds the world, which seems to indicate if you remove one of them, the world collapses. There is a verse uh, that says this quite plainly with regards to Torah. If not for my covenant of day and night, if not for Torah, the rules, the laws of Shemaim, of heaven and earth, I will not have placed. Our sages tell us, if Torah study ceased for even a second, there was no Torah anywhere in the world for any given second the world would revert back to tovo to emptiness and nothingness now what does this mean I want to explain this on a very deep level we believe that there's two parallel worlds there's the spiritual world and the physical world now the spiritual world could be comprised of millions of different worlds separate point but I'm talking three general idea there's a more spiritual world and even in the spiritual world there's many different levels in the spiritual world like my mind tells us there's ten different levels of angels Right. There's ascending levels of spiritual purity. That's a separate point. Let's look at it simply. Simply. There's a spiritual realm. There's a physical realm. And these are very different. And they don't necessarily intersect. And when we, the word holiness means an intersection of two worlds. Means a touch point of two worlds. The physical world itself cannot live unless it is given energy from the spiritual world. This physical itself has no self-propelling continuity. It dem- it relies on the spiritual energy to continue to exist. For example, there's a Midrash that tells us, illustrative of this point, you don't have a single blade of grass below that doesn't have an angel above that strikes it and tells it grow. Now, what this means, doesn't necessarily mean that there's an angel with wings flapping, one assigned to each Blade of grass in your lawn telling it to grow. It means that there's a spiritual force behind everything physical, even the most mundane. The lowest physical creation has to have a spiritual counterpart to exist. But in order for it to exist, they have to be connected. These two worlds have to be connected. Otherwise, how could the spiritual energy flow down from the spiritual world to the physical world? But how can you have two diametrically, wor- diametrically different worlds connect? There has to be some sort of pipeline. Connecting the two. There has to be a pipeline. What's the pipeline? What is this glue that binds the two worlds together? Torah. Where does the Torah come from and where is it now? The Torah comes from the heaven, the heavenly world, from the spiritual realm, but now it's here. So it shares the characteristics of both worlds. When you study Torah, yes, you're studying the Torah. It's here. It's available to us. It's not in the heavens. But part of it still is. And thus, in order to study Torah, you have to draw something from the spiritual world where the Torah really spiritually resides. And thus, by studying Torah, you're drawing a heavenly aspect to your world, to your physical world, and you have create a connection, create a pipeline. Through that pipeline, all the other vitality comes through. Yes, every blade of grass, so to speak. Everything physical has a spiritual counterpart. But it has to find a way to get here. There has to be a connection between the two worlds. In order to create that connection, we do Torah. Torah creates that connection. Suppose there was no Torah. If you cut off all the connections between these two worlds, this world's on its own. If it's on its, wor- on its own, it doesn't have anything powering it, it'll self-combust. It'll cease to exist. It's interesting. There's a few verses in the Torah and there's a few prayers along these lines that compare the Jewish people to the pupil of the eye. I see my purview. Thankfully, I have the power of vision. I see a whole world. I see this whole room. I see all these people. It's an amazingly huge world that I'm able to interface with. And it fills up my inner world. But where do those two connect? Where's this connection? Where's this portal connecting these The outer world and the inner world of, of me. Well, but you close your eyes, you don't see anything. You're, you're on your own. The pupil of the eye is this portal through which all the light of the other world comes and fills in my, fills in my world. The Jewish people compared to the pupil of the eye, what that means is, again, these two worlds have to intersect. The spiritual has to come come here. How does that done? It's done through Torah. And therefore, the Jewish people who have Torah and study Torah, we're doing the world a grand favor. By being the pupil of the eye to transmit, to create that channel and those pipes through which everything else in the physical world can exist, which is a pretty astonishing idea. And that's what we're told over here. And all the commentators said, this is, this is what Shemitah Sadak is actually telling us. The world literally stands on these three things. If you don't have these three things, the world will collapse. Our world, another the spiritual world, the physical world, the world that we live in, if it didn't have Torah it would cease to exist. Very astonishing idea. We're told, just uh, along these lines, just about Torah, I want to, before we explain avoda and how that works, we're told that the temple was destroyed because the, the first temple was destroyed because the Jewish people didn't study Torah sufficiently. Now, first of all, incidentally, the temple is also presented as being another example of holiness. It's called the Beis Hamikdash. The word Kadosh means holiness. It too is a is a touchpoint of two worlds. Why was the temple destroyed, says the Talmud? Even the Jewish people of the time, they had committed all three cardinal sins. Their verdict was not sealed only because they abandoned Torah. One of the commentators says an amazing idea. Torah is also a get-out-of-jail-free card. And he gives us a parable. Suppose there was a king who had a beautiful musician who played the violin or the organ so beautifully. This person was a pretty bad guy, and he committed a terrible crime, an executable offense. They bring him to court, they try him, and they're leading him to the gallows. The king says, you know what? I'm commuting the sentence. Yes, this person is guilty of a capital offense. He should be executed, but I love his music so much. And therefore, I'm going to suspend and uh, withhold the punishment. Sometime later, the musician has a midlife crisis and he says, you know what? I'm done with the violin. I'm out of it. Ah, I'm, I'm sick and tired of playing it. The king says, immediately hang him. <laughs> the only reason why, yes, he's guilty of a capital offense, but I'm going to suspend it because of the music. If he stops playing the music, kill him because of the other reasons why he's guilty of. You know, he's, He still is guilty. Kill because of those. Says the commentators, yes, we committed capital offenses. We did the three cardinal sins, but we still had Torah. And the mind says, you know what? The Torah is so beautiful to me. I'm willing to overlook that. I'm willing to commit the sentence. You stop Torah? I'm going to execute you because of the offenses that you were guilty of. Another very powerful idea that really says how Torah upholds the world. Because without Torah... We're judged on our behavior. Our behavior may indeed make us worthy of being removed. But Torah is indeed a get-a-jail-free card. Another important idea to keep with us of the power of Torah. What about avoda? What about worship of God? If the Torah is the pipeline, if the Torah is the channel, if that is all you need to keep the world afloat, to keep the world standing, what is the idea of avoda? What is the idea of worship of God? So I saw another amazing idea. This is from the Ruach Haim, which is the book written on Perti Avos by Rabbi Chaim Volozhiner, one of the giants of the 18th and early 19th century. And he writes an astonishing point. He says, yes, we in order to have this world continue, we need to have a connection between two worlds, between the spiritual and the physical world. This physical world alone cannot stand. However, there's two ways to create that bind. Either you could pull the spiritual world down below, or you take the physical world and push it up above. And what he says is that Torah, that refers to creating a channel from up, down, from the lofty to the lowly, from the heavens to the earth. You're drawing the Torah from above and pulling it down below, creating a unity between the two worlds and continuity for the world. Avoda, worship of God, is the opposite. It's taking what's lowly, what's mundane, and uplifting it. Taking the physical, material world and bringing it to its source, creating a link between, you have an animal. Again, an animal is something physical. But everything physical has its roots in the spiritual world. And thus, when we take an animal, you sacrifice it, what well, you're actually doing it, what you're doing in a spiritual realm is, you're taking what what is physical and mundane and restoring it to its spiritual sources and thus creating a link between these two worlds in the opposite direction. And that too provides vitality to the world. And prayer, he goes on to explain, is the same thing. Prayer too, which is the, an exact replacement of sacrifices, they too are about uplifting the physical world and making it spiritual. It's interesting. We have a prayer before we eat anything. You eat an apple, you make a prayer. You drink a glass of water, you make a prayer. The water is physical. When we make a prayer, we're actually taking the physical world, the water and making it spiritual. And thus we're changing the whole experience. That idea of a vota, of worship of God, again parallels because it uplifts the world. It, cre- it, cre- it gives continuity to the the, uh, the, spir- the physical world by connecting to the spiritual world. What about chesed? What about kindness? So the kindness doesn't seem to have as neat of an explanation as to why it upholds the world as the preceding two. So all the commentators are, are grappling with this idea. How do you explain that kindness is upholding the world? Torah and Avodah, there's almost verses that say it, creating a bond between these two worlds. What about kindness? Kindness is between man and one's fellow. How does kindness bind two worlds? It doesn't seem to be immediately explainable. So I, w- I want to suggest an, a, a solution. I thought of this over Shabbos. A solution of how to explain this idea. I want to suggest that there are two kinds of Torah. Remember, we said we're studying a heavenly Torah, but it's it's we're studying it here. It's possible to study Torah here, but not study a heavenly Torah. How so? So I want to suggest, uh, based upon the Talmud, the Book of Orzara, on page 18b. Uh, the Talmud of Orzara, very memorable pages, 17 and 18. Highly recommended. So on page 18b, it's talking about Torah and kindness and how they interrelate. And it says a very harsh statement. It says, someone who studies Torah but doesn't engage in kindness, dome ki kemi, she ain't lo eloka is comparable to someone who doesn't believe in God. Someone could be a great Torah expert, studies Talmud all the time, but doesn't engage in kindness, doesn't believe in God. And of course, that there's a lot of questions that jump out of you. Wait a minute, someone studying Torah, obviously they believe in God. Why else, well, why else would they study Torah? So, yes, maybe it's a problem. It's a It's a it's a blemish on their spiritual repertoire when they don't study they don't engage in kindness. But why does that equal that they don't believe in God? So I want to suggest that when someone studies Torah, they could be doing one of two things: they could be studying a heavenly Torah, a recognition that is from God, or they could be studying Torah as if they would be studying any other discipline. It's interesting. It's intriguing. It's thought provoking. It's it develops your mind. There's a way to study Torah and divorce it from God. And these are very different experiences. When someone recognizes it's divine, immediately that mandates them to take it to heart, to integrate it with themselves. It's coming from God. It's not just some sort of wisdom or some sort of discipline that's intriguing and thoughtful and important and, 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 uh, interesting. It's something which is eternal, which is powerful, which is, which is endless, which is from God, from the spiritual world. And therefore, it mandates that they conform themselves to Torah. And thus, when someone studies a heavenly Torah, by definition, it will exhibit in kindness. Whereas someone who studies Torah and doesn't do kindness, obviously the Torah they're studying is not divine in their, in their, in their view. They're studying an earthly Torah, a Torah divorced of God. Well, It's as if they don't believe in God, because they're they're studying a Torah with almost a different author. Moreover, such a form of Torah study will not yield the benefit of connecting two worlds, because you're not studying a Torah from the heavens, you're studying a Torah from here. It's It's a discipline like any other earthly discipline. And therefore, if you want to connect the worlds with Torah, you have to have kindness, because if you don't, you may be studying Torah, but it's not going to uphold the world. That's not what we're talking about. And thus, all three of these things of Shemon Hatzadak that he's telling us, these are the three ways to uphold the world quite literally. Our world will collapse without any one of these three. An amazingly powerful. And I was thinking it's really appropriate. Who's the one who's teaching us this, this idea? Shemon Hatzadak, the Kohen Gadol. The role of the Kohen Gadol is he's is the minister of the portal connecting two worlds. That's his job. He's the spiritual leader of the nation. He is the one who has the responsibility of all of the world on his shoulder because he's the one who oversees this connection. And therefore, how appropriate is that he is the one who reveals us we can't be a though but he tells us the secret. What's the secret? What do I do? How could you do that the same way? How could you fulfill the same role that I do? These three themes, they too create a portal between these two worlds. And I think it's, it's, you know, we have two opinions. What are these three? How are these three things special? According to some, it's because these are the purpose of the world. According to others, this is what upholds world. But really, it's the same thing. The purpose of the world, the purpose of the physical world, is to create connection with the spiritual world. The purpose of Torah is to make this bind, to unite body and soul, to, conf- to harmonize body and soul, to make our soul and our body not different, rather the same because our, our body is being uplifted and our soul is being integrated into our body. And thus, they really are two sides of the coin. Are we looking about what the purpose is or looking about how it's manifest? But both of them are really saying the same thing. And I think, again, another pivotal introduction to the book of Pirkei Avos is going to be the guidelines of how to maximize our life, how to become great people, how to achieve the greatest levels that man can achieve. And here we begin with saying, well, this is what life is all about. This is what it's all about. This is the purpose. This is to make sure it upholds. And I think this should amplify for us what we're doing. we we'll, we'll, we'll learn a lot about kindness, a lot about Torah, a lot about Avoda. Now we know how important and how vital that is for ourselves to achieve our purpose and for the world to have continuity. I look forward to next week, Mishnah 3, another very critical element uh, which uh, does serve as another powerful introduction to Jewish living. Now, just a quick disclaimer, not every Mishnah is as dense as this one. So, some of them we'll be able to do, hopefully, in one session, uh, uh, several of them. There's about 100 of them. I don't want to stay, I, I, I want to get through it, but I think this Mishnah is worthy of dedicating significant time because of its critical nature.